0: Well, good morning and welcome again to Grace Church. To all of you who are here worshiping in person and to all of you who are tuning in live, um, it's good to be worshiping with you today. My name is John. I'm the associate pastor uh, here at Grace. Now, <clears throat> if you could, uh, on your devices or your physical Bibles, if you don't have one, there's one in the uh, pew in front of you that you're welcome to take home as a gift uh, from us. If you could turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Uh, We're going to be wrapping up our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount with the last two verses. So Matthew chapter 7 verses 28 uh, to 29. And as we are turning there, let me start off our teaching this way. For any of you that have gotten any kind of relationship advice, you know that there's a difference between hearing someone and actually listening to what they have to say. Now, if you're a bad listener like me, you already know what the difference between the two are, and you know that the key indicator of how well someone is listening is by looking at how they might respond to you. In the course of the conversation, you may be playing the part. You can be nodding your head and giving off all of these kind of nonverbal cues as if you are actually taking in all that the other person is saying. But the real question as to whether you are listening well is... What happens to you afterward? What effect does that conversation have on you? And so like I shared, I'm not such a great listener, and so something as small as a grocery list, right? I'm dutifully listening to my wife, Helen. When you, I want you to go to Stop and Shop, and I want you to get this, this, that, and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And I'm listening. Okay, I'm listening intently. I got it. Five things in my head. And I go to stop and shop, I drive into the parking lot, and as soon as I'm walking in, I'm telling myself, okay, there are absolutely four things that I absolutely need to get if I want to please my wife. And so I dutifully get those four things, only to come back to know that there were indeed five on the list. So it can be as small things as a grocery list, but it can be as something as big as, well, let me put it this way. I've shared with some of you that I've gone through years of counseling uh, one of the most formative experiences uh, in my life. And I remember having gone through counseling for several months, and this, the topic of this particular person in my life, who's basically altered the course of my life for the worst, came up time and time again. And I remember at some point my counselor uh, telling me, Joe, you do realize that at some point you're going to have to confront this person, Right? And in response to that, I said, yeah, yeah, of course, I, yeah, I, I know, I know, I know. And then the counselor said, wait, stop, I don't think you heard me. So let me say this again, you do realize that at some point, you're going to have to confront this person to reconcile with them if you want to heal from your wounds, And I have to say, the fact that my counselor stopped me on my tracks to ask me that question, were you actually listening to me? was one of the most formative experiences in my life because it forced me to reckon with all that I had experienced before and having heard what I heard from the counselor, having to ask, how am I going to respond to this? See, as we wrap up the sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, as we get to today's passage, we go from what Jesus said, right, all of his teachings. And as we get to today's passage, we see that what Matthew does is he kind of shifts the camera, if you will, from Jesus over to the crowds. And what we're going to do today is look at the response of the crowds, to what Jesus said. And ask the question, what effect did it have on them? And it's an important question for us to consider as we wrap up the Sermon on the Mount because it illustrates for us what motivation Jesus had and what effect that he intended for his sermon, his teaching, to have on the crowds and to have on us. And so let's turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 to 29. And I'll read it for us. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Amen. So what I'd like for us to do this morning is to take a look at the response of the crowds and ask three things. What the response was, and secondly, why it was, And lastly, how it was. What it was, why it was, how it was. Okay, simple enough. So let's go through these three things. What was the response of the crowd? And then we see this right there uh, in verse 28, that the crowds were astonished at his teaching. That was the effect that Jesus' teaching had on the crowd. Now, it's really easy enough for us to kind of uh, pass by this, but I want to stay here. Because that word is key in our understanding for how we ought to respond to Jesus' teaching. The word there is astonished. Now if you were to look up the literal kind of the Greek, uh, the original word for the word astonished, what we will find is that it's a compound word. It's several words that that are crammed into one. And so if you were to take a literal translation of the word astonished, it means to be knocked out of your senses to be knocked out of your senses. So, you'll find in other translations that uh, this word here might be translated bewildered, dumbfounded, or even disoriented. And the word picture that we get is that of a boxer, if you will, a boxer that has been punched around one too many times, right? It's so that this person is in in a state of disorientation, The boxer is lacking awareness of his surroundings. He doesn't quite have the footing to be able to stand, and he is about to hit the ground. I remember getting beat up once in high school. I'm ashamed to say it was (laughs) well-deserved. And when you're getting beat up by a bunch of people, it's almost like an out-of-body experience. You know, it hurts everywhere right, is absolutely disorienting. We don't know when the, where the next punch is coming from. Your adrenaline is rushing, but you're absolutely helpless. And all you want to do at that moment is to grab onto something and hold onto it until all of it stops. And that's the kind of effect that Jesus' teaching had on the crowd. It was as if, for them, a rug was being pulled out from under their feet so that they were in a place now where they had to reconsider everything that they knew about God, about themselves, and about the world. Now, we're going to talk about why that was the case in a moment, but it's important for us to address this point. Because, see, the effect that Jesus had on the crowd was not just an isolated incident right? It's not something where we can look at that and say, well, maybe Jesus was feeling extra controversial that day. Or maybe Jesus had something very important to get across, so in this particular incident, that's what He decided to do. Or maybe He wanted to kind of flex His intellectual prowess before the crowd on this particular day. So maybe it was an isolated incident, but that was not the case at all. Almost every single time, if you were to look throughout the Gospels, where Jesus finishes a series of teachings, We see that the crowds responded exactly in this way. And so, what that tells us from the witness of Scripture is that the crowd's response was a normative response to Jesus' teaching. That's how people would respond to his teaching. They weren't inspired, they weren't necessarily convicted. The response was not that the crowds were primarily warmed to the heart. The primary response of the crowd that we are told is that they were astonished. They were disoriented. Some would even say they were offended. Now, you may look at that kind of reaction and say, you know what? You know, that was then. And maybe, perhaps, they never heard of this kind of message before, but now, we, have, we are religious people here, and we are God-fearing people, so that's probably not going to be the response that we have. But no, if you have been with us throughout the sermon series, what you would know is that Jesus was mostly addressing religious people in the crowd. So it wasn't that this message was novel that they were astonished. These people were knowledge about the, about the Bible, and yet they found their world upended by Jesus' Jesus's teaching. Now, why am I stressing this point so hard? Well, it's because I think at this point it's important for us, as you come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, to ask, what is my response to Jesus' teaching? As we've been in the sermon series for quite some time now, week in and week out, when I hear the message of the Sermon on the Mount, what has been my response? I think it's an important question to consider. As we have been listening to this, have we basically been affirmed of everything that we already know? In everything that I heard from the Sermon on the Mount, has it been in line with how we have been brought up how we assumed uh, the world to be true, or have we been knocked out of our senses? Because the intended effect that Jesus had on his people was that of astonishment. He He was meaning to agitate the people that he was speaking to. Because if that is not the case, if that wasn't the response that we were experiencing within us, chances are there's been a miscommunication. And if there is, I guarantee you, if you have a case of miscommunication with Jesus, it's not that Jesus misspoke. It's that we misheard. And so here's the litmus test. Uh, I heard Tim Keller once say This, if your God, he says, if your God never disagrees with you, he says, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Now, friends, here's what this means for us. Many of us uh, here have become Christians, uh, whether by having grown up in the faith and having kind of owned it later Or uh, whatever the case may be, right? We become Christians, and what do we do? We start digging into Christianity. We start digging and digging and digging, and we find that there's a rock there that stops us in our tracks, right? Maybe it's a teaching that is uh, disorienting to you, right? It just doesn't make sense. Or maybe it's the kind of teaching that is kind of tugging at your moral conscience, saying, maybe there's something here that I need to explore, but I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable about it. Or maybe it's the kind of teaching that is rubbing up against your cultural sensibilities, and so you say, oh, I don't really quite know what to do with it that. When that happens, what do most of us do if we're being honest with ourselves? What we do is we gently skip over it. We bring ourselves to fall in line. Why is that? Well, if you've been digging into Christianity long enough, chances are that for you and I, it's become socially convenient for us to now become Christians. And so what we do is we don't want to put everything in jeopardy in terms of the kinds of things that we bought into, so what we do is we stop processing these questions and doubts and just kind of move on with our lives and ignore that part of Scripture. But here's the problem. The doubts and those questions that arose in your digging into Christianity don't go away. They may be in the back of your minds, but as, uh, as, as much as you tried to kind of shove it out of the way, it stays there and it tends to fester. And chances are, whether it's in times of difficulty, suffering, or some kind of an intellectual crisis, what you'll find is that it rears its ugly head once more. And see, friends, this is why, especially nowadays, you see accounts of so many prominent Christians who've held significant leadership positions within the Christian culture or in the church walk away from the faith altogether. These are teachers that have taught the Bible for decades who are saying, I don't believe this anymore. Why? I'm willing to bet that this is what tends to happen. You've bought into a system, and instead of asking tough questions about it, you start to walk away. Why? Because when you come to Scripture, what you're expecting to do is to agree with it, or rather, for it to agree with you. And when it doesn't, when it knocks you off your senses, you say, there must be something wrong with me. But friends, let me tell you this. Do you find... That when you come to Christ, uh, Christian scripture, do you find yourself doubting? Are you offended by parts of it? What I want to tell you today is that this is normal. The crowds were astonished, the crowds were knocked out of their senses, the crowds were offended. They came away. They walked away from Jesus with more questions than answers. And you also realize that more people walked away from Jesus' teaching than those that followed Him. The response that they got when they came to Jesus and His teaching wasn't that of affirmation, it was astonishment. Jesus, throughout the course of His ministry and His teaching, what we find is that Jesus is less concerned about making converts then he is about making genuine disciples that's why jesus says stuff like die to yourself and follow me we just saying that that's why jesus says i want you to count the cost that's why jesus says things like you want to follow me great i want you to go back home sell everything that you own then you can follow me what a terrible political move by jesus it's as if he's trying to push people away. But that's because, again, Jesus is less interested in making converse than He is about making disciples. Uh, throughout the last couple of years, I had the um, fortune of, see, as a pastor, right, your life is kind of wrapped up in church, and so it's really difficult to make non-Christian friends. But over the last uh, couple of years, um, I had the wonderful opportunity of being becoming really, really close friends with a group of non-Christian men. We meet together every single week. And these are men that were, are adamantly against any kind of religion. Right? So it was really interesting when they started talking about religion and it would soon turn into making fun of the one pastor in the room. But you know, over time, uh, I could sense that there was a turn in the dynamic of our friendship. Whether it was maybe, hopefully, my witness in the way I acted and in my speech, and in the graciousness that I tried to exercise and uh, engage in engaging kind of their worldview, whatever the case may be, or maybe they just thought it was the polite thing to do, that might really be the case. Uh, but I found them saying, you know what? I can see why Christianity would be appealing to people. I can see why people would believe in Christianity because, you know, Christianity talks about love and Christianity talks about justice to the oppressed. You know, Christianity talks about uh, caring for the poor. Christianity talks about hope for the future that can't be taken away. And so considering all that Christianity has to say, I can kind of see why people would uh, uh, be, uh, uh, believe in Christianity. And to that, I remember thinking like my, my initial response okay, here is my moment. I'm going to evangelize, and I'm going to lean into uh, those things, and I'm going to say, yeah, isn't Christianity great? You should check out my church. But I remember thinking, you know what? No. These are my friends, and if I were to go along that line of thinking, I felt like it would kind of be a bait-and-switch. And so I remember saying, you know what? Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I'm a Christian, because of all of these wonderful things that arise out of it. But I have to tell you, Christianity is kind of crazy if you think about it. It's centered around this figure who claimed to be God. And it says that he fed thousands of people with like two fish and five loaves of bread. He claims to have raised the dead to life, he claims to have died and then rose again from the dead, and that he prophesied about all of these things that he knew it was coming from before time. And they were kind of like, okay, next topic of conversation. (laughs) Let's move on. Why? Because I I felt so convicted to portray Christianity in this way, not because I was trying to drive them away, but I was convicted that what Jesus is after is not cheap acceptance. Jesus is not some insecure person who's dying for acceptance by the crowds. He wasn't after cheap acceptance. That was not the point because the, the intended effect That Jesus uh, was going for in his teaching was that of astonishment. He wasn't out for acceptance. He wanted to show clearly what he stood for, who he was, and what God was like, and leaving the decision up to the hearer to respond. Out of your astonishment, what are you going to do? Are you going to leave or are you going to follow? And so that was the response. But secondly, why, why was the crowd so astonished? Well, we get the answer very simply in verse 29. It says, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Why were the crowds astonished? Because Jesus taught with authority. But a very specific kind of authority, right? Authority that is different in kind, that stood in contrast to the kind of authority that the scribes or the Bible teachers at the time wielded. And so what is this kind of authority that Matthew is talking about? Well, if you are to look at the scribes of that day, The validity of their teaching was dependent on a higher authority. So these scribes studied the Old Testament Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures. They memorized them. They taught out of that memorization. And if the crowds were listening, they knew that a scribe was a good scribe if they were faithful to the tradition of the teaching that was passed down to them. And you know, preachers are exactly the same way. See, when Pastor Aaron and I, when we prepare for our sermons, we spend a considerable amount of time in the original text. Right? We wrestle over every single word. We go to the original languages in the Greek and the Hebrew, depending on which testament that we are in. We consult the commentaries to make sure that this idea that we may have as a teaching point is not completely off the wall, that uh, credible scholars in their years of uh, studies into this text would agree with us. Right, We spend a considerable amount of time studying this text because the validity of our preaching depends on the faithfulness of the meaning of the original text as it was handed down to us. And so as was the case with the scribes back then, but with us today, right, you as the listener of our sermons need to be listening with attentive ears. Pouring over Scripture to make sure that what we are saying is in line, actually in line with what the Bible has to say. And if there's any discrepancy that you find in any of what we say, and if it doesn't line up against Scripture, you need to tell this. So that is the kind of authority that the scribes have had. It's dependent on a higher authority, but when it comes to Jesus, we find that He was completely different. Right? Jesus claimed to be the authority on all things pertaining to eternal truth, right? The Old Testament prophets, when they would open up their mouths for a teaching or some kind of oracle, they would open by saying, thus says the Lord. What does Jesus say? When he opens up his mouth to teach, he says, truly I tell you. Right? Just in this chapter, if you look at verse 24, It says, everyone who hears these words of mine, you hear how Jesus says these words of mine to emphasize that the words that he is giving out are his, right? These words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Or if you go back even further in the Sermon on the Mount, right, you hear this series of teachings in which Jesus says, you have heard it was said, and then he goes on to talk about the popular religious teaching of the day, and then he turns to say, but, he doesn't say, but what it really meant was, or what the writer was actually trying to say was, Jesus doesn't say that. He says, uh, you have heard it was said, but what does he say? But I tell you. Jesus places all authority on himself. In fact, if you look at John 14, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He leaves no room for doubt as to where his authority comes from. It comes from within himself. Because he is the truth. He is the Lord. If you look down at verse 21... He says, not everyone who says to me, and this is the most astounding claim of all, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into uh, the kingdom, uh, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Do you see the offense of what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, I am the Lord. I am the judge and jury. I am the one who holds the keys to the kingdom of heaven, who has the authority to deem one to be worthy of heaven or not. Here, Jesus is saying, I have authority over all that is true, because I have authority over all things. Now, why is this so important? Here's what Matthew is doing here. Matthew by pointing to camera if you will at the crowd and seeing their astonishment what Matthew is doing is he's taking uh, uh, us from reckoning with what Jesus said on the sermon on the mount and now forcing us to reckon with who Jesus is. He is the Lord. He is the truth. That's what Matthew is saying. Now here's a question that we need to ask, even for those of us who claim to be Christians, and you might be saying, I already know this. What are you trying to say? Well, are we actually listening? Did you hear Jesus the first time? N.T. Wright, uh, was a Christian theologian, said this. <clears throat> How can you live with the terrifying thought How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that the fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the more devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play-acting. And then listen to what he says. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world of in-between. Now I have to tell you, if I'm being honest with you, just kind of in my own spiritual life, that last line there haunts me so much. Why? Because if Jesus is who he said he was, That he is in fact Lord, there are two things that are absolutely true that should change our lives. One, if Jesus is Lord, everything he says is absolutely true. Everything he says is true. There's a philosopher named John Frame who basically says that every argument is a circular argument. I don't have time to go into all uh, the details of it, but he basically says that if you trace every single argument far back enough or every observation of reality far back enough, there is an anchoring belief where you say it's true because it's true. So like I have the Bible in front of me. How do you know? Well, because I'm touching it. Well, how do you know you're touching it? Well, I see my hand on it. Well, how do you know that? Well, I have eyes and I have retinal sensors. Well, how do you know that? Well, I have, my brain is telling me so. Well, what if there are aliens here that were messing with your brain and at some point you just have to throw up your hands and say, I know because I know. And the reason why John Frame says this is because every single person, whether you're a Christian or not, operate off an anchoring belief, something that you hold to be self-evident in it's truth. And for Christians... What Christians believe is that the anchoring belief is not just a set of principles or a set of moral teaching or some kind of an experience, but Christians believe that our anchoring belief is in a person. Jesus is the anchor. He's where the buck stops. I remember years ago when I was in college ministry I would have all of these students that would come, and they were kind of living in more or less kind of sheltered Christian environments, and they come to a very liberal kind of secular elite university where they're bombarded with all of these different kind of worldview claims that have uh, to talk about everything from gender to sexuality to various lifestyle choices and those kinds of things, and they're asking these questions saying, what am I supposed to do with these things? How does the Bible line up against everything that I'm experiencing now? And how does that affect the way I live? And I remember walking these students through some of those things, and in the beginning, I would take every single thing that they would say and say, okay, what's the scriptural answer to that? I will go there. But after a while, what I found out was that, actually, listen, let's stop for a second. And say, all of those questions are important, and I'm happy to process them with you. But I remember saying, at some point, you're going to have to wrestle with who Jesus is. Because if you are convinced that Jesus is, in fact, Lord, that Jesus is God, then all of your doubting, all of your processing, as important as they may be, they need to be done in light of who Jesus is. And all of your processing needs to be done before His face. You need to see the world through the lens of who He is and what He has done for you. But if not, who cares? Live your own truth. And you can do what you like. See, it's important for us to grasp who Jesus is. Because everything that we read about who, uh, who He is, everything that we see out in the world, needs to be interpreted in light of who He is. If Jesus is in fact the God of the universe. But you know, it's not just with college students, right, it's true with us adults as well, Right? We know that we're living in an age of unprecedented amount of information, literally at our fingertips. All of these hot takes, opinions, facts, and studies that come from cable news, from social media, from political figures that we endorse and uh, stand for, right? As we take in all of this information, all of these hot takes and opinions, we have to ask the question of, are we interpreting Christianity in light of them, or are we weighing everything we come across against who Jesus Jesus is. If you find that Jesus agrees with you all the time, you might be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. You see, if Jesus is Lord, everything that he says is true. That's why Paul says, let every man be a liar, but let Christ be true. But what's also true, if Jesus is Lord is not just that everything that he says is true, but that everything he says is true. You see what I did there? That everything that he says is true. And that means we don't get to pick and choose what we receive to be true from him. right? If Jesus is Lord, we can either dismiss him out of hand and choose not to follow him. That's fine. It's your prerogative to do that. But what you don't get to do is to say, I do follow Jesus, but stick to the things that He said that is convenient for you. And I have to confess to you, I really had to search my own heart and look through the Sermon on the Mount and say, what are my tendencies? And what I found was that I love talking, preaching, teaching about God as our Father. Don't you know that God loves you, that through all of your difficulties and suffering and, and, and mishaps in your life, that God has been in control, that He has not abandoned you, that He has committed to you, and all of those things that are happening to you that you are regretting, that you are suffering through, is in fact God fathering you to develop you to, to be the kind of child that He has designed you to be. That is a glorious truth. I love teaching on that. You know what I don't like? <laughs> When Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That the call is for us to strive to be perfect in love, giving ourselves away for the sake of our neighbors and even for our enemies, to love them, to to pray for those that persecute us, to give ourselves away to the poor. Those kinds of things, I don't like it so much because it is inconvenient for me and uncomfortable to teach. So I find that I ignore that call in my life and I'm constantly having to tell myself, wait, did Jesus actually say that? This is something that I should actually be obeying. See, again, Jesus, Matthew is forcing us to reckon with the person of Jesus and asking, did you actually hear what Jesus said? Because if he is Lord, everything that he said is true. And most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, are unable to cope with saying either that He is Lord, and therefore everything is fair game in terms of what Jesus says, or that this is all a sham, and walk away from it altogether. And so what most of us decide to do is to live in the shallow world of in-between, picking and choosing our pet verses, hanging our hats on our pet issues, and living by them see friends the reason why the crowd was astonished the reason why the crowd was knocked out of their senses was because when they actually when they actually heard what jesus had said jesus was taking away the option of living in the shallow world of in between it was because jesus was asking them do you know who i am that is the foremost question that needs to be answered. And the question that I want to pose to you and the question that I'm asking of myself, is do we know who He is? Because He won't have it any other way. See, the crowd was astonished because of what Jesus was saying about Himself and what that meant for them. Okay? So let's move on to the final point So how was it that the crowd had the reaction that it had? What we found was that uh, what the reaction was was astonishment, and why it was was because of what Jesus said about himself. But how was it that the crowd had the reaction that it had? And it's a simple answer, really. We get it from verse 28, that it was when Jesus finished saying these things that the people were astonished. Now, it may be a self-evident point. It's really easy to pass this by. But man, there's a world beneath those couple of words. See, this phrase, when Jesus finished these, saying these things, serves as a bookend to the entire Sermon on the Mount. Right? This is how the Sermon on the Mount closes. But how did the Sermon on the Mount start? We have to go all the way back to chapter 5, verse 1, where it says, Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then what does he say? It says, He opened his mouth and taught them. See what's happening here? The sequence of events. Jesus saw the crowd, and what he decides to do is he decides to go up on this mountain, or probably a smaller hill, most likely, and he decides to teach them. Now, why is this significant? And one of the uh, greatest trainings that I ever received in preaching specifically early on in my ministry was when I became an interim children's ministry pastor. I served as interim children's ministry pastor for about six months along with my duties as a college pastor at the time. And so for a while, there were Sundays that I would uh, prepare a sermon uh, to preach to adults, the whole congregation, Uh, but I would also... Uh, Preached the same sermon, uh, a sermon on the same uh, passage to children. And I have to tell you, that was rough. It's hard enough capturing children's attention. But if you're actually trying to impart the Word of God to them, and if you're actually trying to teach them and illuminate the Word of God to them in a way that's not just teaching moral tidbits here and there, you really have to condescend to their level and when I say condescend I mean it in the best sense of the word to make everything that I say perfectly clear and concise and easy to understand to master level of development and I have to tell you to this day I mean this was many years ago to this day I have so much respect for anybody who's in children's ministry for all the work that they do in teaching our children and I have to tell you, I was around 24 at the time. And if it was hard for myself to do this at the age of 24, to teach, you know, 8 to 9-year-olds to kind of be, speak on their level, what would it have taken for the God of the universe, think about it, who is infinite in His wisdom and understanding, to teach and to communicate who He is to mere mortals, to mere human beings like us. Friends, do you realize the magnitude of God's grace in the way He reached out to us in revealing Himself to us in this way? As N.T. writes, as this hurricane becoming human, the fire that's become flesh, walking in our midst, decided to use the language of mere mortals to peel back the layers of heaven to reveal who He is to us. See, all of the effect that it had on people, the astonishment, all of it was God wanting to be known. All of it was God reaching out to us before we even knew to reach out to Him so that we might know Him. He was disclosing Himself to us. Now, friends, you know in a romantic relationship, you know you've really kind of turned a corner. When you and your partner go from, you know, making small talk, chit-chat here and there, And you get to a point in your relationship where you are carefully, perhaps, start disclosing the real you, that information about yourself that you're not quite proud of, or even the trauma that you've experienced. Why are we so slow in doing that? Why? Because when we reveal that part of ourselves, we are at risk, aren't we? Because we know that there is no pain that is greater than disclosing yourself to someone who says, I want nothing to do with that. And they walk away from you. But friends, do you realize that this is the kind of condescension that God was willing to endure for us in disclosing himself to us? He's saying, this is who I am. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to pretty up the demands that I will be making of you. This indeed is who I am. And do you know that in Jesus, God disclosed His true nature to us, not at the risk of the pain that might follow, but at the certainty at the cost of it. Because we know that Jesus paid for His disclosure with His life. Because you know that if you read the rest of the Gospels, that the people just could not handle his teaching and his claims. We know that it drove the religious people so angry that they ended up nailing him to the cross. See, friends, there were people that claimed to be messiahs that came before Jesus. These were attention seekers, lunatics even, that claimed to be God, that claimed to be the truth, but I tell you, none of them, before Jesus and none of them since Jesus were motivated by the kind of love that drove Jesus to teach his people. See, friends, when Jesus taught us, he wasn't just giving us mere principles of truth. He was giving us himself. Let me just say this one more time. If you are in a place in your life where you're struggling with doubt, I want you to know that that's absolutely normal. In fact, if you're comfortable with all that Jesus has said and you find yourself constantly saying yes and amen to everything that Jesus says, you should probably go back and read the Sermon on the Mount again because you're probably getting it wrong. But friends, if you are struggling now, let me encourage you. Will you turn to Jesus will you reckon with the idea that this god has become human and decided to reach out to you and his self-disclosure that we find in his teachings were all signed with his very own blood are you listening to him are you really listening to Jesus because he is giving himself to you All of the stuff that Christians like to say about Christianity not being a religion, but a relationship, do you know that that's actually true? That God can be known personally, that He desires to be known by you personally, that He was willing to give up His Son, Jesus Christ, so that He can have you in a loving relationship with Him. Do you understand that to be true? That is actually true. Are you listening to Him? Let me encourage you, friends, this morning. Will you listen to Jesus? Will you look upon Him? Because He is giving Himself to you. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You um, for this word that You have given to us uh, this morning. And Father, we thank You that in Your Son, Jesus Christ, we find the fullest disclosure of who You are in Him. He has taken on flesh He used the language of us mere mortals to disclose to us who He is. And so, Father, having seen that, having seen His motivation, having seen Your motivation behind all of Your teachings, may we now turn to Your Son, Jesus. May we submit ourselves under His authority. And God, as we do that, we you shower us with the kind of love that demands all of who we are. All our soul, our life, our all. And God, as we do so, we ask that you would change us. You would change us to be more like your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. For those of you that are able, please stand as we close our time in song.